1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Psychoanalysis, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. My name is Philip Lance, and I'm a host of the Psychoanalysis channel. Today, I'm interviewing neuropsychoanalyst Mark Solms about his book, The Hidden Spring, A Journey to the Source of Consciousness, published by Norton in 2021. My longtime listeners may remember that I interviewed Mark about five years ago after the publication of, of his two, 2015 book, The Feeling Brain. Since then, he has become even more famous in the world of psychoanalysis and neuroscience, so it's a pleasure to have him on the show again. Here's his short bio from the back cover of the book. Mark Solms discovered the four brain mechanisms of dreaming. He is director of neuropsychology, Neuroscience Institute at the <clears throat> University of Cape Town, South Africa, where he lives. He is also honorary lecturer in neurosurgery, Royal London Hospital School of Medicine, and honorary fellow American College of Psychiatrists. In the world of psychoanalysis, Mark is known for, among other things, his argument that Freud was right about some things, some of the things that 20th century neuroscience got wrong. In the world of philosophy, he's known for going a long way towards solving what's known as the hard problem of consciousness. Mark is the founder of a discipline called neuropsychoanalysis, a discipline that integrates neuroscience with psychoanalysis in a way that allows each of these two disciplines to illuminate the other. I'm imagining that some of our listeners may be having a skeptical response right now, doubting that brain science and psychoanalysis have anything to teach each other, but more on that later in the episode. In the first part of this interview, I'm going to ask Mark to outline the basic features of neuropsychoanalysis, and then we'll look more specifically at this latest of his books, The Hidden Spring, to learn more more about where it fits into his oeuvre and what it contributes to the field. So welcome to the show again,
0: Mark. Mark. Thank you very much. Great to be here.
1: And let's just begin with um, maybe you telling us what's the big idea you've contributed. (laughs) Maybe there's a bunch of big ideas, but give us the biggest one, one or ones. And, um, And I'm guessing that it might be something about how consciousness subsists in the inner older portions of the brain where affective states reside. And unconsciousness resides in the cortex, the newer outer layer of the brain. Which is kind of the opposite of how how people often think about it. Am I on the right track there?
0: Yes. Um, so what you've just said is 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 basically correct. I'll fill in a few details. Uh, but you, you're asking about my my um, contributions. Like there, I think you're asking about my contributions to neuroscience, and uh, my work in that field uh, began with a study of the brain mechanisms of dreaming. Um, And uh, that was in the, well, I I started working in that area in the 1980s, but my first publications in that area came out in the mid-1990s. And uh, the the main thing that I found at that time uh, was that dreams are generated by different brain mechanisms from those that generate REM sleep. Um, and the specific mechanism for dreaming uh, is a circuit, or the driving circuit for dreaming, uh, arises in the brainstem uh, and projects forwards into the frontal lobes. And it's 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 the chemical, the neuromodulator that mediates it is dopamine. Now, why that was important uh, from a psychoanalytic point of view? You say that I that I showed that neuroscientists had made some errors. Uh, uh, uh in in uh that uh, that 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 freud had got some things right that we in neuroscience had got wrong and that was that was certainly um a, an example of that because the the dopamine circuit that i found generates dreams as opposed to rem sleep is about as close as you can get uh, to a neurological equivalent of what freud called libidinal drive uh, that it's called the brain reward system or it's called the seeking system. Uh, it's a, it's the major motivational system of the mammal brain and that's what drives dreams. So dreams are driven and motivated. you know that was that was news. Um, and that's what made me interested because that circuit starts in the brain stem. Uh, it's one of the, the they're, they're a collection of nuclei in the brain stem which are called, the reticular activating system. Uh, And so this circuit that drives dreams um, has its origin in the reticular activating system of the brainstem. Uh, And when I say it drives dreams, what I mean is it drives a state of consciousness that intrudes into the unconsciousness of sleep. I mean, the most striking feature of dreaming is that although you're asleep, you're conscious, so um, that made me interested in the role of those nuclei in generating consciousness, um, and the fact that the consciousness, the quality of consciousness that drives dreams, is this is this seeking, uh, this this positive uh, reward-seeking, pleasure-seeking uh, drive, uh, also made me interested in the role of those those brainstem nuclei in. In drive, you know, in motivation and in affect, because these these are felt states uh, of consciousness. That led me to um, team up with a brilliant neuroscientist who sadly died a few years ago, named Jacques Panksepp. He was doing the most interesting work at that time. Um, Well, I think actually he was doing the most interesting work of all time um, on uh, how these. Deep brainstem mechanisms, ancient, primitive structures, uh, which we share with all vertebrates, you know, how these circuits um, are are the source of consciousness, number one, as opposed to the cortex, that it's these primitive structures. Number two, uh, that they they are also imbued with these affective qualities that I was talking about earlier. So it was a revolution. I have to say that revolution is not mine um, uh, to claim. It's much more Yark-Pankseps. I I teamed up with him because of what I had found in relation to dreaming. Um, I teamed up with him in his work on the role of these brainstem nuclei in generating consciousness and affect, suggesting that consciousness came from within, from below, uh, that it was a very basic function, uh, and that it was intimately bound up with affect. That, in turn, led us to have to doubt uh, the traditional views of uh, the role of cortex in consciousness. Uh, the cortex is not intrinsically conscious. The cortex is only conscious to the extent that it is activated by the reticular activating system. So its consciousness is derived from those primitive affective um, uh, uh, um uh, instinctual mechanisms at the at the core of the brain, so so yes, as you said in your question, that that, that entailed a reversal of the traditional view uh, that consciousness uh, was was associated with the highest functions of the cortex, uh, and that these brainstem structures were automatized reflexes, and you know nothing of any great interest uh, from a from a psychological point of view. But I have to just add one further point, which is that um, the cortex, uh, the the, the representational uh, or cognitive mechanisms of the cortex are, of course, capable of consciousness. When they are activated from below, uh, then our cognitive processes, including our perceptual processes and our thought processes, they become conscious. Um, But there are other four brain structures between the brainstem and the cortex, which we call subcortical uh, ganglia, the the most important ones of which are the basal ganglia uh, and the amygdala, but also the cerebellum. These are also representational structures. They're not dry. They're not arousal structures. They are are responsible for varieties of memory uh, uh, and varieties of, of cognition. Uh, and those structures on, are, are utterly unconscious. So uh, we, the cortex can be rendered conscious by the brainstem, uh, and thereby its cognitive processes can become conscious. That's equivalent to what Freud called pre-conscious processes. In other words, they're descriptively unconscious, but they can be rendered conscious. Whereas the Basal ganglia and amygdala and cerebellum, these subcortical uh, forebrain structures, they are responsible also for memory and the cognitions derived from memory, but those cognitions remain utterly unconscious. They are therefore more uh, the equivalent of what Freud called the unconscious as opposed to the preconscious. So I, I just didn't want to um, uh, uh, leave uh, our, our viewers or listeners with the impression that, that the cortex is utterly unconscious. The cortex is capable of consciousness to the extent that it's activated by the brainstem, but the subcortical memory systems are are forever unconscious. And uh, this is of great interest, of course, to, to psychoanalysts. Okay.
1: Um, and by the way, if I'm yelling... I hope our listeners don't feel like I'm shouting at them, but we're we're having a little technical volume issue, so i'm I'm speaking very loudly um all right, well, let's then go back to this this libidinal drive that Freud originally theorized um that was motivating the dream images so for those of our listeners who are clinicians um who um might be hearing dreams uh from their clients, um, this idea. Would, would imply that those dreams might could be interpreted um, based upon an idea that that they're motivated by some some libidinal seeking um, underlying drive and so I, I guess my question um, is neuropsychoanalysis a drive uh, a drive theory unlike I guess there's some forms of schools of psychoanalysis that don't emphasize the drive as much. Um, but so tell, talk to us about drives and psychoanalysis. Uh,
0: sure, gladly. Uh, first of all, let me just go back to what you said about dreams. Um, the, although the seeking drive, the one that is most similar to what Freud called the libidinal drive, although that is the um, crucial system uh, among these different arousal systems, it's the crucial one because damage to that system obliterates dreaming. Uh, if that system is 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 dysfunctional, then then no dreams happen. So it's absolutely pivotal. But uh, if you image the dreaming brain. Uh, you you see that all of these different um, uh, drive systems uh, not only that one this what we call the seeking system uh, all of them are activated during during dreaming sleep so i mean it really is quite remarkable considering that the person is asleep you know how all these motivational systems um, are switched on really full blast um uh, so the others are also implicated in dreams. Uh, it's not only, it's just that this one is the crucial one. Um, and the way that we think about that, um, if you'll forgive my French, you know, as, as they say, when you, you know, you go out into the world expecting that all of your uh, desires are going to be met and then shit happens. Uh, so we have other uh, uh, motivational systems for dealing with, you know, the the disappointments. So there are fear drives, uh, they are they are anger or what we call rage drives um they are separation distress drives um and then are the other ones which are happier you know like there's a, a drive to play uh which is an astonishing uh discovery uh, there's a drive to care uh, a nurturing drive uh, and then of course uh, there's our old favorite uh, the sexual drive um so what i've just said um is that all of these drive systems are involved in dreaming. Uh, it, it's, it, you, you have a wish. It doesn't mean it's going to pan out the way that you want it to because um, you know, all sorts of other things exist uh, other than what you want. Um, and in saying that, I'm, I'm uh, taking the opportunity to enumerate uh, the emotional drives that we've discovered in affective neuroscience uh, and in neuropsychoanalysis, uh, and the evidence for the existence uh, of these drives is overwhelming. Uh, now, you say that um, many uh, psychoanalytic schools have moved away from drive theory. And um, I, I, it's not hard to understand why. It's because everybody lost confidence in the Not everybody, but a good many psychoanalysts and people who work psychoanalytically uh, f- uh, lost confidence in Freudian drive theory. Uh, it seemed it seemed uh, you know too uh, reductionist and too and too biological and too simple uh, to account for the rich complexity of what happens in of what we see in, uh, in the consulting room and what happens in our in our lives. So I need uh, to point out that the rejection of Freudian drive theory, uh, needn't imply a rejection of drive theory in general, uh, because in fact, as long as the mind is embodied. And after all, what else can it be? You know, if we are, after all, a species of animals. So this is one of the foundational starting points of psychoanalysis: is that we are embodied. I mean, uh, that we are that we are uh, whatever else we are, uh, uniquely human. Nevertheless, human beings are a species of animal. You just you just have to look at the fact that we need to eat, sleep, drink, etc. You know, we need to; otherwise, we die. We are embodied creatures. Um, And so, you know, the idea that there are drives, uh, whether the ones that Freud identified are correct or not, is a very different matter uh, uh, from the question as to are there drives? Uh, Freud's definition of drives uh, was uh, that they are measures of the demand made upon the mind uh, for work. By virtue of the connection between the mind and the body, in other words, because the mind is embodied, uh, it's driven uh, by our by our biological constitution. Uh, that doesn't mean the totality of the mind is its drives, but you know, it's kind of like, if you'll forgive the pun, a no brainer that there must be drives. So what we've found uh, in the decades uh, since uh, Freud's pioneering work. Um, using methods that Freud could barely have dreamt of uh, uh, having access to, uh, is that, of course, there are drives uh, in the in the human brain. And I'm only mentioning the emotional drives when I list the seven that I did a moment ago. But uh, they're, they're, they're very different from how Freud conceptualized them, first of all, uh, because they're not two, they're seven. Uh, so, you know, that's news. Um, and secondly, because they are intrinsically object relational and that's a very important point in terms of your remark about um, many schools of psychoanalysis having moved away from drive theory Freud's view was that drives were these kind of blind objectless forces uh, objectless was literally the term that he used for them uh, but if you think back to what I just said about the seven drives the seven emotional drives I described uh, for example a drive to play a um, that uh, that implies a certain kind of object relationship. You know, you can't play without a playmate. Um, the, there's a drive to attach, uh, what we, when I, which I mentioned under the heading of separation distress. It implies a certain kind of object, an attachment object. You can't have a drive to attach without uh, a, a, an object of a specific kind, uh, namely a caregiving object. I spoke of a nurturant drive, um, which implies a dependent vulnerable little object uh, that you're looking after and so on I won't go through all seven well let me just say fear <laughs> implies a persecutory object rage a frustrating obstacle of an object you know so these are intrinsically inherently object relational drives and so I think that the the great schism in the in in the um Major traditions over the 20th century in psychoanalysis between drive theorists and object relational theorists is bridged by the discovery that uh, the, the the real drives uh, at work in the in the human brain and mind uh, are intrinsically object related. Um, they they are they they carry within themselves uh, something along the lines of what Beyond called um, a preconception a preconception of an object, uh, of a certain kind of object, then you find uh, that category of object in the actual world that you're born into, like a caregiving object or a a, a persecuting object or a frustrating object and so on. But these are a priori categories of object relationship uh, that we human beings, by dint of being human beings, are born to expect. And uh, what we mean by a drive uh, is that there are these viable bounds that we have to stay in, like I need to have my caregiver nearby, I need to not be under attack, um, I, I, I need to not have frustrating uh, in, uh, obstacles impeding me from, from, from reaching uh, the, uh, the, the, the other, uh, for satisfying my, my, my other needs and so on. Um, so the, the, the concept here, the core concept is homeostasis, is that we need to be within those viable ranges, like, you know, not under attack. Uh, it's it's These are built uh, upon basic bodily processes, like I need to be in a certain temperature range, I need a certain amount of oxygen, I need a certain blood pressure. Deviations from those viable states are what we call drives. Uh, in other words, I'm not where I need to be, and that's to paraphrase Freud again, that's the measure of the demand for work. We now have to do something to get back into our viable balance. And that is unpleasurable feeling and pleasurable feeling. So that's how we conceptualize drive now. It's, I can put it in much more sort of user-friendly terms and just say we have basic emotional needs, just like we have basic bodily needs. And if those needs are not being met, we feel an unpleasant you know, uh, pressure uh, uh, of a particular quality. Um, and, and we are strongly motivated to get rid of those bad feelings. And uh, there are certain kinds of things we have to do. That's demands for work, you know, in reality. So the, there we have the famous old pleasure principle and the reality principle. They're things we have to do in the world in order to uh, satisfy our, our emotional needs, so yeah we have a drive theory in in psychoanalysis uh, bu- bu- built on a lot of very very good evidence accumulated over decades but but I have to I have to supplement my answer there philip by pointing out that su- neuropsychoanalysis isn't only a drive theory um, you know we also have um, with the other important um, discoveries that we've that we've made and that we have um drawn upon, because not all of the discoveries in neuropsychoanalysis were made by us ourselves. You know, as I said earlier, Panksepp's work was fundamentally important. Um, Likewise, uh, the the work of these days, somebody named Carl Friston, who's working more at the cognitive end of things, uh, you know, we've made all sorts of um, uh, interesting um, uh, observations drawing upon those developments in cognitive neuroscience, as opposed to affective neuroscience, and 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 uh, applying them to the psychoanalytic situation and developing them, therefore, in specifically neuropsychoanalytical ways. And here I'm referring to um, uh, the, the 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 drives have to do with those brain stem structures I mentioned earlier. Uh, the cognitive side of things is more the forebrain end, uh, and I said that, that there are these cortical. Uh, structures, and then the subcortical structures, all of which subserve what Freud would have called memory systems. You, you must remember Freud's topographical model, that that picket fence thing that we, that we first saw in the chapter seven of the interpretation of dreams. Uh, that, that, is a, that, is, that topographical model is a, is a mo- model of the different memory systems uh, of the, of the human mental instrument or mental apparatus, as Freud called it. And um we've learned a whole lot of new things about how the how those memory systems work. Um, as I said a moment ago, uh, uh, the cortical ones are equivalent to what Freud called preconscious. the subcortical ones are equivalent to what Freud called unconscious, but those unconscious memory systems uh, uh, please note the plural you know there's not just one of them uh, 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 the two most important for for clinical uh, 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 psychoanalysis um, are what are called the procedural memory systems uh, and the the emotional uh, memory systems. And uh, then um, uh, equally important uh, is that they are not only unconscious, but unconscious forevermore. They cannot be rendered conscious uh, by dint of the, the nature of the representations that we're talking about. They are just response patterns. They can only be enacted. They can never be thought. So that's important. Um, so that has all sorts of implications for psychoanalysis. Then the preconscious ones, the cortical ones, you know, again, uh, we divide them into, uh, into subsystems. Uh, these can be rendered conscious. Uh, we call them the episodic, Uh, and the semantic memory systems. And what we've learned about how all of these memory systems work, uh, I'm just sort of alluding to it, I'm not not explicating it, um, is is all of it of of great interest. Um, And and, and one last point I want to make in that uh, that area is that we we think, uh, under the influence of Carl Friston's work, um, we, we think of these memory systems as prediction systems, so, so uh, although memories are about the past, they are for the future. Uh, m- memory, you know, the whole point of learning from experience is to be able, is to change what you do in future to better predict. Uh, on the basis of past experience, I predict that the world works like this. Um, and so this is a, a, a fundamentally important notion that memory systems are, are really essentially prediction systems. And I hope you can see the immediate connection to psychoanalysis, the whole idea of wish and transference, you know, that, that, uh, that, that we project onto the present uh, uh, the, 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 the experiences from our past that we expect to find uh, in the present what we found in the past, so all of this stuff is of great relevance for psychoanalysis, not only the drive theory, um, also, also these revisions of our understanding of, of, what, uh, of what, uh, what would have been called topographical theory in the old days or structural theory.
1: Yeah, you just um, triggered my memory of something that happened in a session yesterday that really, um, I think I stumbled on this idea about memories of, about the past but it's about predicting the future with a client who was talking about his anxiety and why why does he have it and um and I thought we could see by his history he had he had, lear- he had, he had good reason to have learned to be very anxious uh about the world and things were still um, difficult for him with regard to his his mother and his father so so there's good reason that he would predict they will <laughs> things are going to continue to be dangerous for him uh, but anyway, I'd rather have you tell me a, a psycho uh, or a clinical um, any a clinical application how does how is this used uh, in the clinic uh, these ideas
0: well um, so depending on how you date it. Um... Neuropsychoanalysis began uh, f- officially in, in 1999. Um, it, 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 we started the journal named Neuropsychoanalysis um, and the Society, the International Neuropsychoanalysis Society, a year, a year later. Of course, that was preceded by years of work. My own first publication uh, that was explicitly about the relationship between psychoanalysis and neuroscience was 1986, so, so you know, for a long time, we were just doing groundwork, basic science, trying to, trying to translate neuroscientific knowledge into psychoanalytic terms and vice versa, psychoanalytic knowledge into neuroscientific terms. And we had to do all of that uh, before uh, we could get to the application of uh, this um, basic uh, theoretical work. Uh, to, our, to our clinical practice. And it was very frustrating for many uh, of, of, of my psychoanalytic uh, colleagues. You know, they were saying, well, that's all very interesting, Mark, you know, but what, what does it tell us about what we should be doing? Uh, and, and so happily, I can say, uh, over the last, uh, gosh, well, I can date it pretty precisely, really, over the last 10 years, because it was at our Neuropsychoanalysis Congress in Berlin in, in 2012, that, that the first breakthroughs, uh, the first, uh, uh, it first became obvious that we were learning things which really did have implications for, for clinical practice. So you asked me, you know, what sort of implications it has. Well, uh, to begin with, uh, what I said earlier about there being seven emotional drives, uh, and if people don't like the word drive, let me repeat what I said earlier: there are seven basic emotional needs of the human being. Um, that means that each and every one of us needs to satisfy um, the the drive to play, uh, the drive the drive to be cared for, uh, the drive to to be safe, uh, the drive to 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 nurture, or as it may seem, we actually need to look after little vulnerable ones, uh, and so on. And so to know that these are the basic emotional needs of our patients, uh, and also remember what I said about their role in consciousness, uh, that the fundamental uh, 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 mechanisms of what we are conscious of are feeling mechanisms, Uh, and then you start to see, okay, so, you know, what drives the life of the mind is how we feel, which is to say something pretty bloody obvious, but to say it now on the basis of really good scientific evidence, that that what drives what we do is how we feel, good and bad feelings of various kinds. And knowing what the kinds of different emotional needs are enables us to recognize um, the quality of our patient's suffering, which is conscious. Our patient's suffer mainly from feelings and they come to us, usually they're presenting complaints are, you know, I feel like this, I'm depressed, I'm anxious, I'm, I'm angry. Um, and they want to not feel like this. These are varieties of unpleasure, again, to use the old fashioned terms. Um, so we uh, believe it's very, we in neuropsychoanalysis, um, we, we foreground uh, in, our, in our evaluation, our first sessions with our patients, we foreground what is the patient feeling, what is the actual nature of the emotional trouble that they're bringing to us, us doctors or feelings, um, and, 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 and recognizing which of these basic emotional needs is not being met is, is, is recognizable through uh, the, the, the fundamental, uh, the, the, the affect of quality. Uh, of, the, of, of the patient's suffering, which is, let us not forget, what brings patients to treatment. Uh, so, recognizing what that is, not only uh, it, it does it put us on the same page as the patient from the get-go, in other words, that's a good fa- basis for a therapeutic alliance, that we both understand that what we're trying to do is to help the patient with this suffering, which has this particular uh, quality. But it tells us which of their emotional needs is not being met, which immediately, and of course, it doesn't mean it's only one, but usually there's something which stands out against the background of all the other things. And so this is our kind of basic point of orientation. So this is the problem. It's it's a it's a feeling of this kind that's 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 derailing this patient's life, which means there's this emotional need is not being met, and then that leads us to the question as to what is unconscious. In other words, how is the patient going about meeting this need, uh, because it's clearly not working for them? And remember what I said earlier about our cognitive, uh, our our predictive systems being based on. Uh, uh, on early experience, and there you see all the phenomena of transference and whatnot. You know what the patient is enacting, what the patient is repeating, uh, but it enables us to just see it a little bit more clearly in relation to these this nosology or taxonomy uh, of of the drives. Um, so the, our first the first thing that we say to clinical uh, to our colleagues is it's very important to identify what. The nature of the patient's suffering is, and then secondly, to ask the question: Okay, looking at the transference and the history, uh, trying to trying to infer, to reconstruct, well, how does this patient go about meeting this need, and and why did they go about meeting this need in that way? The fundamental task, uh, then, a the clinical task, becomes it, it, making the patient aware. Uh, through a transference interpretation, in fact, uh, but, but slightly differently understood. Uh, I would say more broadly understood because transference doesn't only happen to the analyst. The patient doesn't only transfer onto us. They transfer onto their current object relationships. Uh, these predictions derive from their primary object relationships. And so um, looking at the At the enactment of transference in this broad way, uh, we try to bring to the patient's attention um, how they are going about meeting this need and problematizing it. It's become automatized. It's become unconscious. Uh, Remember what I said about those different memory systems. These are unconscious memory systems the patient cannot remember. The the solutions they came to to life's problems in childhood, but but they enact those solutions. They, the the predictions are are enacted. It's the, it's the only way they can be remembered, and we draw the patient's attention to the enactments to what they're doing, um, and in this way. Uh, if I can sort of uh, formalize it in a way that, of course, we don't actually speak to our patients, but to say, can you see you doing this thing over and again? Uh, can you can you see it's meant to satisfy this need? Uh, it's In other words, it's, this is why you're doing it. Uh, number three, can you see it's not satisfying that need? It's not working. Uh, and fourthly, that's why you're suffering from this feeling. Uh, in other words, to, to 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 make to to make the patient aware through drawing attention to the transference in the broad sense, um, uh, to problematize how they're going about meeting this particular emotional need. You invariably find when you reconstruct where it came from that there are conflicts between the different emotional needs. Um, so, to, to 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 sort of summarize uh, the contributions that we are making to clinical work is to understand the importance of these drives uh, and and, and the classification of those drives, how they are directly expressed in the feeling lives of our patients. It helps us to understand what feelings mean uh, in a a new, slightly new way. It's not a radical revolution in psychoanalysis. We're, We're building upon what we learned, you know, over the hundred years before neuropsychoanalysis. We're just adding a new layer to it. And uh, and then the understanding of how these memory systems work—that uh, the unconscious is fundamentally a prediction uh, 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 system, uh, uh, that the predictions get enacted, they can't be thought, uh, and that, but what the enactments themselves can be thought about, showing the, the present in uh, behaviors um, and 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 and, and uh, thoughts, uh, uh, and in this way. Uh, 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 rendering uh, conscious once more something which has become automatized, uh, and thereby giving the patient choice to rethink now uh, with their new circumstances, um, uh, to to free them from the compulsion, the repetition compulsion of having to uh, having to do this thing. So you can see in everything I'm saying, it's 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 pretty. Uh, standard psychoanalytical stuff with little tweaks here and there to help us uh, to, to see just a little bit more clearly what's going on. And God knows the life of the mind is a complicated enough thing. And so uh, any help that we can get, uh, we, 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 we gratefully uh, accept.
1: When, um, you know, psychotherapists are famous for asking this question, how do you feel about that? And I think, and sometimes I myself ask this question, it feels very useful. And I think I would have in the past, before I read your book, have thought, well, it's because people aren't always conscious of their feelings. But your book argues people are conscious by definition of their feelings. So why do we ask them to, why do we ask them what they're feeling if if everybody's conscious of it?
0: Well, feelings, as 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 the word implies, are felt. In other words, they, there's no such thing as a feeling that you don't feel. So yes, feelings are conscious. When we speak about uh, them being unconscious, what we really mean is we don't know where it comes from. You know, so a patient feels something, but they don't understand why. They don't want to feel like this. It, it seems, uh, you know, irrational to them that they should have such intense feelings about things, uh, and so the 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 unconscious part uh is the is what causes the feeling where did it come from why uh, uh what explains the feeling and and so uh, that's a that's a, again as i said earlier just a slightly different way of understanding uh i i think that the whole of neuropsychoanalysis really just helps us to think a little bit more clearly um and to see a little bit more clearly what's going on it sort of brings our theory up to speed with what we actually do, uh, you know. I think that we have we have the baggage of a whole lot of theories uh, that 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 kind of um, bequeathed to us by the history of our discipline, rather than by um, by virtue of actually of actually explaining what's going on. So that's an excellent example. You know, we think um, you know of 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 the unconscious and the conscious uh, in, in kind of the wrong way around. Uh, and once you explain to colleagues and you know, well, hang on a minute, the patient feels that's their suffering. That's why they're coming to us. That's not unconscious. Um, what's unconscious um, is the predictions. In other words, what are they doing uh, that they predict will meet this need? Uh, because clearly uh, it's not it's not working because that needs not being met. And where do those predictions come from? Well, they come from the developmental history um, you know, of our patients and so <clears throat> yeah that's exactly how it works
1: okay so we have a wide variety of listeners um to new, book, new books and psychoanalysis and some of those listeners come from a very academic context um, oftentimes in the humanities uh, rather than the natural sciences and some of those listeners um, conceive of psychoanalysis as a critical project critical in the sense of political, radical, revolutionary and disruptive rather than medicinal or medical. And so those I could imagine some of those listeners are, you know, reacting that that what 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 you're doing is returning psychoanalysis to these banal foundations of western science, the experimental method and all that, rather than to the critical work of exposing the scientific ideologies that blind us to emancipatory possibilities. So what would you say to those critics?
0: And have you encountered this objection? Oh, oh yes, I encounter it all the time. Uh, uh, happily, um, that sort of um, concern um, or or, or um, anxiety about what we're up to in neuropsychoanalysis is diminishing. As I said earlier, we've been at it now for three or more decades. Uh, and and uh, it, it, I, I face much less resistance than I did. Um, but, uh, you know, what you raise is a very important t- topic. Uh, I, I don't want to get lo- I want to answer it comprehensively, but I, I worry I'll get lost in the details. So let me just say up front, first of all, uh, that um, neuropsychoanalysis does not seek to take anything away from psychoanalysis. It seeks to add something. So, you know, it's not... Uh, everything that psychoanalysis has been historically everything that we've gained and learned um about the life of the mind in psychoanalysis uh is, is this is the psychoanalysis part of neuropsychoanalysis we then add uh to that uh what we can also learn uh, from this from this other point of view um I, 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 when i say from this other point of view uh it's a it's um the the, the, the the unique thing about the mind uh, is that it has dual aspects. Um, I'm a dual aspect monist, as indeed was, was Freud. Uh, in, in other words, you know, when Freud said that consciousness has two perceptual surfaces, one faces outwards and registers objects, uh, the other faces inwards and registers our subjectivity. Uh, these are two different perspectives upon one and the same thing. Uh, when I wake up in the morning and feel myself to be alive, and thank God for that, uh, uh, that's my mind, uh, my subjective being of Mark Solms. And then when I stagger over to the bathroom and look in the mirror, I see a body. That's also me. It's also Mark Solmes. They're not two of us. You know, these are two different perspectives upon the same thing. And and what unites these two different perceptual surfaces, as Freud said, um, is is the uh, is the underlying um, uh, functional organization of the of the mental apparatus as freud called it you know so so what we're doing is metapsychology Uh, In other words, inferring what lies behind subjective experience and then adding to it and what what lies behind the objective perspective on the very same thing and and adding the two perspectives to each other. So it's not taking away the subjective perspective. It's saying, well, what can we also learn from the objective point of view uh, on the very same thing? And it is the very same thing, as I say, when I look at my bodily perspective. Form in the mirror, it's me. You know, it's it's the same me as 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 is my subjective mental life that I that I free associate from when I'm lying on a couch. Uh, these are just two points of view on one and the same part of reality. So we're adding an additional point of view. We're not taking away the first one. Um, now, one. Remember, I said I'm going to give you a long answer to this. I'm sorry, but I just have to tell our listeners or, or, or viewers. Um, where I started from, um, I uh, was a neuros... am a, and and was first and foremost a neuroscientist, um, and I was frustrated uh, by when I say a neuroscientist, I was in particular a neuropsychologist. In other words, I was I was uh, studying and practicing that branch of neuroscience which is devoted to the study of the relationship between brain and mind. And, and I was I was terribly disappointed and frustrated by how little mind there was in neuroscience. So just the mind uh, that my professors taught me about in the seventies and eighties, you know, was a information processing device. There was no what it is like to be um, somebody experiencing a memory, um, you know, or, or, or a feeling. Um, or a, or a fantasy or a dream and it was all just this desiccated mechanistic um, cognitive uh, machinery and, and and I thought uh, to quote my, my my late friend Oliver Sachs who said in 1984 it's when I first uh, contacted him and it was the beginning of our friendship he said neuropsychology is admirable but it excludes the psyche. you know neuropsychology excludes the psyche and I thought right on that's correct. Um, and so that was why um, I turned to psychoanalysis uh, to try to um, to try to rectify or or or, or um, uh, uh, in, in, in bring breathe life uh, mental life into neuropsychology. Uh, so it's not that I I was a psychoanalyst who was looking to neuroscience to try to. Uh, make us more scientific and make us more objective and, you know, uh, uh, reduce us to an experimental discipline. It was the, exactly the opposite, that I was seeking to bring into neuroscience everything that psychoanalysis had to offer. Um, and I, I think it's important that people understand that. I'm, I'm, I'm somebody who, who, who's, who, who greatly values what can be learnt, uh, from the subjective point of view. They're things that you can never see with your eyes, not least of them feelings. You know, you, 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 you'll you never see a feeling. It's not a thing. Uh, it's not an object. It's a subjective state uh, of, of being. And so if you don't uh, take that perspective on the brain, add the psychoanalytic point of view, uh, you will never understand how this part of nature works. Because you know, we all know that we're driven by subjective states, things like feelings that you cannot see, and so um, you know that's been my project. My project has, and but once you build that bridge between psychoanalysis and neuroscience, it's a two-way bridge. Um, God God knows, uh, certainly Freud um, was greatly looking forward to the day when it would be possible to study uh, the mental apparatus also from a biological point of view and you know it's hard it's uh, the psychoanalytic it's very hard to understand just one session uh, l- let alone you know one whole person in their totality let alone you know the whole of the human mind you know if just using the m- method of free association we need all the help we can get and uh, there are uh, there are real contributions uh, that uh, but everything i have uh, drawn upon uh, from my neuroscientific knowledge Uh, and colleagues' knowledge, uh, and brought to bear on psychoanalytical problems, it's always been only a matter of, let's try this out. Let's see, does this add something? Does this help us to see uh, more and better? Uh, uh, Does it enable us to see something we otherwise might not have seen, uh, and and thereby uh, do something we might otherwise not have done? So the final test of 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 all of these uh, uh, theoretical innovations derived from neuroscience is in the clinical situation. It's you know the clinical situation remains the final court of appeal for psychoanalysis. That's where we discern, and and from there we make our contributions back to neuroscience too, and have been you know now for years. So this is this is not a reductionist project. Uh, when I say it's a Dual aspect monism. It means everything that we can learn and have learned over more than a hundred years of psychoanalysis about um, the, 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 the 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 fundamental workings of the mind. Um, that we're adding to that an additional perspective, um, and and contributing that perspective uh, to to enrich the the uh, the objective perspective to 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 ameliorate what can't be seen uh, to 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 fill in the gaps uh, in the in the neuroscientific conception of the mind and then you know it it it, it works both ways. Um, Freud for those people who think that psychoanalysis is fundamentally antithetical to science you must I must remind them that Freud was a neuroscientist uh, 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 and then a neurologist uh, and 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 that he described psychoanalysis from the beginning to the end as a natural science in fact um Toward the end of his life, in one place, he actually said, "What else could it be?" Uh, so, so he was aspiring to bring subjectivity into natural science, to bring this part of nature—in other words, lived experience and what lies behind it—to uh, bring it into to to to, to integrate it with, because God knows it exists. You know, experience exists, subjectivity exists. Freud was trying to incorporate that into science. Now, if you do that. It means you're integrating everything that we've learnt from the from the subjective uh, and and and, 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 and to, to just use one word for it uh, from the from the humanist perspective, the Geisteswissenschaften, as it's called in German. Um, it, it brings all of that uh, into conjunction with science and vice versa. So Freud applied uh, what we learnt. Uh, in in the what he termed the natural science of psychoanalysis. He then applied this to the study of religion and the study of, of mythology uh, and the study of, of, of groups and social formations uh, and literature and art and so on. you know it was it's a it's a wonderful thing that we can have a, a, a science of the mind which is both um, uh, able to speak, to and draw upon uh, the humanities and also speak to and draw upon uh, the, the the brain sciences. I don't see why it has to be one or the other. I don't see an, an, a fundamental antagonism between the two at all. Um, and uh, as I said in the beginning of my long answer to your question, happily um, – Uh, You know, the the International Neuropsychoanalysis Society now has more than a thousand members. Um, And and, and, uh, we're also, uh, I'm not sure how many psychoanalysts and psychotherapists realize um, how we are also breaking down barriers um, in the other direction. In other words, making people who are so prejudiced scientists, uh, who are so who have historically been so prejudiced against psychoanalysis by having a language, a kind of a Rosetta Stone that translates between the one language and the other, being able to explain to them in words they can understand. But this is what we believe. This is what we're doing, and they say, "Well, why don't you say so?" That makes sense. You know? So I think it's also important uh, in a in a in a um, environment in which. It, it's a, let me put it this way. It's a big mistake for psychoanalytically minded people to sequester themselves from uh, the scientific Weltanschauung and uh, and say, we don't believe in evidence. We don't care about science. Science is the enemy. You know, that's like saying the reality principle is the enemy. We're just going to stake our claim on the pleasure principle alone. There's a very slippery slope that. Anyway, I've said enough.
1: Okay. You know, I did a really woefully inadequate job of introducing you, but I feel a need to kind of let people know about your stellar credentials, both on the psychoanalytic side and the neuroscience side. Um, If I remember right, you're the general editor of the revised translation of the complete works of Sigmund Freud. Um, Credentials on the neuroscience side, I don't know. In my mind, you're, you're probably one of the top 10 public neuroscientists in the world. I don't know what you might point to. But um, but let me ask a double question, double-barreled question here, because I want to begin wrapping up this interview. So you could answer that. But um, let's talk about this book, *The Hidden Spring*, because a lot of what we we've, we've covered in this interview um, really is, is similar ground to what we talked about five years ago when we talked about your book, *The Feeling Brain*. What does this book do do new? I want to tell listeners, it is more technical, I think, than the feeling brain in terms of the, the wet tissue sort of data we get into. Uh, but uh, what does it add to your project?
0: Um, well, thanks. I, um, when you say that, that I am an eminent neuroscientist, I, I want to make clear that what sets me apart from my neuroscientific colleagues in other words to the extent that I have acquired prominence uh, it is precisely because I have turned to psychoanalysis you know and drawn upon psycho the psychoanalytic tradition it's injected something utterly new into neuroscience and, and that's thanks to psychoanalysis you know that's uh, th- that that's um, the, the, the the wellspring upon which I, have drawn um, since the 1980s, and I'm very grateful uh, for, and, and very lucky to have to have taken uh, that path. Now, uh, against that background, I can answer your question. Uh, this book, The Hidden Spring, is not addressed primarily at a psychoanalytical audience. It's addressed primarily uh, at a scientific audience, a general scientific audience. Um, I, I would say... Um, Probably I um, I um, thought that I was uh, it would be comprehensible to a wider uh, uh, general audience than it is because it is a difficult book. It, it, it that is because it tackles uh, the the hardest problem that there is in contemporary science as a whole, let alone neuroscience. You know, which is the hard, the so called hard problem of consciousness. So the book is about fundamentally, it's about uh, uh, trying to uh, trying to tackle uh, 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 at the roots uh, this hard problem of consciousness, uh, but it does so by drawing upon psychoanalytic ideas. So it's me, So I'm I'm taking from everything I've learned uh, through my God, what is it now? Uh, Thirty five years of, of of involvement with psychoanalysis. Um, And, 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 and it's kind of the culmination of all of that integrative work that I've done. Um, But, but not speaking to psychoanalysis here, I'm speaking more to, uh, to, to the other side, as it were, and, and, and to, and to people who, who, who think fundamentally neuroscientifically, which I have to say also is the kind of the more uh, the, the majority of mental scientists these days are not psychoanalysts. The majority of mental scientists are neuroscientists and cognitive scientists. So I'm, I'm speaking to them, uh, um, uh, if I'm speaking to any uh, specialism, uh, but I'm trying also to speak to general, uh, a general sort of educated audience uh, about... Uh, how does our understanding of the hard problem change uh, if we recognize the things that we spoke about in this conversation at the outset, namely that, we, that consciousness is not uh, this very complicated, cognitive, uh, self-reflective, um, uniquely human and linguistic business, uh, that consciousness is just raw feeling um, at, its, at its heart um, and if we if we tackle the hard problem of consciousness uh, from the bottom up, uh, uh, asking you know why do we feel, uh, uh, what is the point of feelings, what do they do, what, what, what how do they change uh, the, the life of the mind, it, it casts a very different light on the nature of consciousness and the nature of the problem of consciousness. So that's what the book's about, um, and. Uh, 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 it's, it is hard, I'm sorry, because it's the hard problem, uh, but uh, I've tried my best to make it as accessible as possible to as wide an audience as possible. But I need to emphasize again, uh, I mean, I say so in the book, but, you know, I want to emphasize here that it is fundamentally drawing upon um, upon um, psychoanalytic uh, sources of knowledge. Uh, and ways of thinking and i think that to the extent that i've made any progress uh, in 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 solving that problem uh, it's been because i've taken that approach
1: yeah it um it's, it's it's 300 pages i would just if you read it slowly though it is very accessible you know it's it's difficult especially for those of us who don't wander into these waters Often, but but, like so much of your writing and speaking, there's a a real clarity to it. And if you patiently work your way through it, a very profound ideas and argument that are also extremely relevant. Um, just today, in the New York Times, I read a story about artificial intelligence and people who are beginning to make claims that there's these new robots, artificially intelligent robots that um that are sentient or conscious. And I think the agreement is no, they're not. But um, in your final chapter, which which really beautifully lyrically written almost, um, you, you describe a project that you believe may be possible to build a machine that's not just in, intelligent, but that feels and therefore is conscious. And what are the Challenges with that, and including the ethical challenges, it's a fascinating read, and I would encourage people who pick up the book to um, stay to it through the end because there's some uh, really uh, extremely relevant current um, things you're wrestling with there.
0: Yeah, thank you. I'm glad you emphasized the ethical challenges. I tried very hard to make clear in, in that chapter, you know, what 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 we uh, what a what a, a it's it's really um, a, a huge ethical challenge in all sorts of ways. Uh, this quest to uh, to engineer an artificial consciousness, but um, I I would never I was never interested in artificial intelligence. I, I I always thought it was ludicrous that these people are speaking about artificial minds. You know, they're talking about something that's got nothing to do with the mind, uh, the lived life of the mind. Um, and, and now, now over the last few years you know I find myself deep I, I mean I have I'm working very closely with um, physicists and applied mathematicians and roboticists and uh, you know and uh, computational neuroscientists. Um, and uh, as you said, uh, what we're trying to do uh, is 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 not to engineer an, an artificial intelligence so much as, an artificial form of feeling, in other words, an, art, an artificial system that functions in the way that I described uh, earlier about drives. It basically, it's 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 a system uh, which which the, the basic uh, design feature of which is that what wants to continue to exist. Uh, it it wants to continue to be, um, and so there are certain needs like uh, energy supply and so on that it has if it is going to continue to exist and it has to work to meet those needs and uh, so that the idea that basically that um, homeostatic mechanism which is which is very simple uh, I mean certainly very simple compared to our cortical cognitive processes uh, that 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 that's that sort of mechanism uh, is, is surely is engineerable uh, the, the crucial questions there apart from the ethical ones are um, what justifies one to take the point of view of a of an artificial uh, 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 intelligence what what justifies you to to even begin to speak of uh, how how are things from the point of view of the system and there's a lot there's a lot that i could say about you know what 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 is what 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 the prerequisites are to to even speak about the system's point of view um and then the other really big question is how do you go about determining whether whether there is something it is like to be the system. In other words, does it feel like something to be such a system because of the problem of other minds? Um, You can never observe a subjective state uh, objectively. And so that's another really complicated uh, methodological and epistemological problem that we're grappling with. But it's fascinating. It's fantastically interesting.
1: Thank you very much for taking your time to to share your work with us. Um,
0: really appreciate that. Great, thank you, and, and good to see you again after five. I think it might even have been a it might even have been six years, but good to see you again. Thank okay. thank you for okay. your interest. And just
1: to remind listeners, we've been speaking with Dr. Mark Soames here at New Books and Psychoanalysis, and we're talking today, especially his book. The Hidden Spring: A Journey to the Source of Consciousness. And if you have any questions about the show, please feel free to contact me, Philip J. Lance, at gmail.com. Um, have a good good afternoon.